Happy Pride from Tomboy X. Celebrating pride and the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women. Creating sustainable size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection. Obsessively fit tested for all day comfort in sizes 3 extra small through 6X. Visit TomboyX.com. Me. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no spy girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene was good! But be careful, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Gene, run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So far in this series, we've explored a range of dance floors that captured a unique moment in history. Clubs that were brilliant and groundbreaking, but that were only open for a few years because so many of the world's greatest nightclubs don't exist anymore. The buildings are gone or have been transformed so much that they're barely recognizable. But in this episode, we're going to explore the story of one building that's been around for 138 years and is still standing. A building in the middle of Paris that has lived three lives. In its second life, it was home to one of the most iconic clubs in Paris. A nightclub where some of the world's most famous and influential people would escape to just be themselves for a night, without judgment, without scrutiny, and with total freedom. Because even the rich and famous need a place to escape. This is the story of Les Bandouches in Paris, France. When I was a teenager growing up in the inner city of Baltimore, I read a lot. I would get lost in books that took me to places around the world, and Paris always seemed so magical. When I suddenly became a music artist, the world opened up to me. I went to Paris for the first time, and it did not disappoint. But Jean-Pierre, the future owner of Les Bandouches, grew up in Paris. And he didn't just read or hear about Les Bandouches. He'd known about it his whole life. His father owned the building, but it wasn't until his mid-teens that he went to a party at Le Bon for the first time. I was uh, 15 years old. I found the invitation for the opening on my dad's desk, and I decided to go. Paris is one of those truly beautiful cities. There's a decadence and energy that feels old world, romantic and progressive at the same time. I can still remember visiting the City of Lights for the first time and getting wrapped up in the immense beauty, art, creativity, and cosmopolitan opulence of Paris. 
As Jean-Pierre walked through the city, he felt a similar kind of excitement and anticipated all the places his night could go as he walked down the cobblestone streets that led him to the club. When he arrived, there was a long line to get in. I showed up, the street was packed. Police had to come, it was blocking traffic. I was going all the way to the boulevard. The only way to see the trains was to walk the streets and check people's look. The people who went to Liban in the 80s were deeply embedded in the city's art and fashion scene. So dressing up came naturally to them. Paris is the fashion capital after all. But there was another reason people put so much thought into what they wore when they headed out to the club. There was this uh, lady at the door called Marilyn. This goddess, Marilyn, blonde, blue eyes, strong, beautiful, you know, mid-30s. Marilyn was Levan's legendary bouncer. She was a very empowered woman, and uh, she was very intimidating. Bouncers hold the keys that have the potential to either unlock all of your nightclub dreams or leave you outside in the cold. And later on in the series, we'll explore a club in Germany known for its tough door policy, Bergheim. But let's get to know Marilyn and the role she played at the door first. A huge part of the legend of uh, Les Bandouches is Marilyn on top of the stoop, making everybody panic. <laughs> and every time I meet some people, they say, oh my God, you know, she was so scary. Sometimes she would let me in, sometimes she would not. Very famous people would tell me now, oh my God, when I was young, I was trying to get in and then she would never let me in. Or they would tell me I was completely unknown, but she would let me in any- anyway. Throwing a good party comes down to the guest list. The people you invite can completely change the tone of the night. As the gatekeeper, it was Marilyn's job to handpick the people who would make for the most interesting night. She would be there and pick up who could come in and who could not. And she was like a painter. She was all like a perfumer, picking up ingredients to make sure that the, the smell would be amazing. And uh, she would pick up people, making sure that the party and the night would be magical. Everybody had to get Marilyn's seal of approval before they walked into the club. You had to have a spark of something special to get into the club, a certain je ne sais quoi, an intangible aura that pulled people in. If you had a cool look, if you would bring something interesting about you, you could get in. Whether you were rich or you were a struggling artist or you were just like an employee, you know, uh, but you knew how to dress or you knew how to dance, you could get in. Which is what made standing in line outside Liban so thrilling. You had no idea if you were going to get in or not. But if you were granted admission, stepping into the club felt like walking onto a film set for the very first time. It was surreal. You would walk in. I mean, and it was amazing. Le Bandouche was beautiful. An architectural feat with luxurious interiors and priceless art. That place was one of the best clubs in the world, attracting the most talented, famous, amazing people you can think of through all those years. Le Bandouche was the place where the rich and famous went to escape the pressures of fame. Outside, they had to maintain a polished image think about everything they said and keep up appearances. But at Levan, they could have unfiltered fun away from the scrutiny that came with fame and truly let loose on the dance floor. 
surrounded by people who were just like them and didn't really want anything from them. As Jean-Pierre walked in, he saw musicians and actors sharing meals with new people. You would see Mick Jagger having dinner with Jerry Hall, or you would see uh, David Bowie having dinner with Iman. The supermodel Iman. I remember meeting her once when I was in Paris, and it was a magical experience. I had grown up idolizing her as one of the most beautiful women in the world. But it wasn't unusual to see beautiful people at Liban. The club was filled with glamour, models, and designers. On the right side, you would see uh, Catherine Deneuve with uh, Yves Saint Laurent. Then you would see Thierry Mugler and John Galliano having dinner together. You would see Andy Warhol all the time. Les Bandouches was the pinnacle of Parisian glamour, luxury, and celebrity. I saw all that many, many, many times. So it was just stunning. When the lights went down, the club filled up and the dance floor came alive. At Les Bandouches, an ordinary but chicly dressed person living on the outskirts of Paris could dance with an actress until dawn. A reclusive superstar could get up on stage and do a spontaneous midnight performance. A supermodel could walk down the stairs to the basement, holding a cigarette in one hand and a champagne glass in the other, kick off her heels and jump headfirst, fully clothed into a swimming pool. From London Audio, iHeartRadio, and executive producer Paris Hilton, this is the history of the world's greatest nightclubs. A 12-part podcast about the iconic venues and people that revolutionized how we party. Let me open up your world. Some of the world's most legendary nightclubs were known for the unique community they welcomed, others for the cultural movements they started, and some for the musicians and DJs they introduced to the world. The best nightclubs champion new music, transform lives, and provide an escape from life's pressures. One more thing. This is the history of some of the world's greatest nightclubs, not a ranking of every club in the world. It's an exploration of the spaces, people, and club nights that made a lasting impact on nightlife and music today. I'm your host, Alternate. I'm a singer, songwriter, and musician, and I found my purpose in club culture. This is episode six, Les Bandouches, Paris, France. Les Bandouches was a glamorous building in the center of Paris that lived three lives, as a spa, a nightclub, and a hotel. In each of its lives, it was a meeting place for some of the most famous, influential artists of its time. The place they escaped to, to let loose in, and were free to truly have fun at. It was a temple of beauty, music, and glamour. A sense of magic filled the air because each night at Leban was rich with possibility. Anything could happen. Happy Pride from Tomboy X. We just dropped our Pride 24 collection. Queer founded, queer run, and creating size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies. So you feel comfortable in your own skin. Visit TomboyX.com to shop. Me. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no spy girl. 
like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered for just being me. Amy Winehouse, Back to Black, directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R, under 17, not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. In cities that have been around for centuries, every building feels like a museum in its own right. They carry hundreds of years of history and several lifetimes worth of stories. Almost every club we've explored so far started off as something else, usually as warehouses or old factories, abandoned, not-so-beautiful places that became something special when they were transformed into clubs. But Les Bandouches is not like the other clubs. It started as one of the most beautiful, luxurious places in 19th century Paris. It was uh, originally created by a guy called Auguste Gerbois. And Auguste Gerbois was famous in Paris for having a café, which was really the epitome of a café society, which was called Café Gerbois. The café was at the center of Paris's art scene. In that café was born the Impressionist movement, the painting school, with the likes of uh, Renoir, Monet, Manet, Cicely, all the famous groundbreaking artists that uh, now are being in the biggest museum around the world. Auguste wanted to create another place for artists like Renoir and Mamet to congregate. He had a dream, which was to make the most beautiful and luxurious bathhouse in Paris. We would call it a spa today. So in 1885, Auguste bought 63,000 square feet of land, commissioned an architect, and opened a new building. Le Bon Gerbois, the first luxury spa in Paris. People from all around the city visited the spa to relax and receive beauty treatments. Hydrotherapy, steam showers, and massages. And it also had a hair salon, it had a restaurant, it had a bar. So for that matter, it was, it was really unique. And the spa's beauty attracted some of Paris's greatest minds, from artists like Claude Monet to writers like Marcel Proust. The spa was open for over half a century before closing in the late 1960s. It was empty for a few years. The beautiful spa, swimming pools, and treatment rooms were beginning to gather dust. The heirs of Auguste Gerbois, the Gerbois family, sold the building to my father in the early 70s. In the 70s, Jean-Pierre's father, Professor Maurice Marois, was working at a medical school in Paris. He thought that buying Le Bon would be a great investment, but it was an unconventional building. It was this strange space with uh, mainly no windows, a lot of stairs up and down, and, uh, and it still had uh, swimming pools, steam rooms, showers. He had this big space, which he really didn't know what to do. And it sat there for quite a while. Until two young men came knocking. Two kids in their early 20s. One of them was like uh, 21, the other one was maybe 24. Had the idea to do a place that would be a restaurant, a concert hall, and a nightclub. They tried to convince Professor Marois to let them sign a lease on the building. Since at the beginning, my father uh, said, uh, I'm not interested and wouldn't take their call anymore. But then... They walked into the, 
the university and they walked into the amphitheater. Now I was giving a lecture in front of 200 students. And at the end of the class, they came to see him and they said, you know what, you don't want to, you don't want to take us on the phone anymore, but we'd love to, uh, you know, rent this place. We have an incredible project. And he thought it was pretty bold and uh, cool. And he told them, okay, uh, call my lawyers and see what we do. So that's how it all started. And uh, for some reason, they managed to convince my father to give them a lease. Those two young men were Jacques Renault and Fabrice Cope. They had a vision for the club, and once they'd signed the lease, they began to bring it to life. In 1978, they reopened the building as a nightclub called Les Bandouches. And it instantly became a place to be. The first thing they had to do once they signed the lease was figure out how to make a 19th century bathhouse into a club. So they hired a guy that was a friend of theirs that was, you know, maybe three, four years older than them, totally unknown, coming out of an interior design school in Paris. And they said, all right, we're shoestring as a budget, but let's do something that people will uh, remember. That friend was architect and designer Philippe Stark. Which is now one of the most famous designer and interior designer in the world. They wanted Philippe to preserve some of the most beautiful features of the spa while bringing its early 1880s foundations into the late 1970s. It's a gorgeous building. It was inspired by the 17th century architecture of the Place des Vosges, but with a 19th century twist, the Osmanian twist, as we call it in the architectural world. And it's brick and uh, white stone building. It has a massive entrance with a stoop, uh, you need to go up, and uh, with statues on both sides holding lights. When you walked in, you walked straight into the restaurant. And it was not very big. I would say it was maybe at the very most 200 square meters, 2,000 square feet. But it was beautiful. Philippe Stark had covered the walls with white and blue tiles, and the room was furnished with solid, expensive tables and chairs. You could sit I don't know, maybe 60 people for dinner at the very most. There were candles on each table, and at night, the flames flickered and reflected off the glitter and sequins around the room. The club's restaurant was decadent and glamorous, but it wasn't a museum. It was a place where people had a lot of fun. Hello, je m'appelle Claude Chal. That is Claude Chal, a DJ and art director who used to party at Le Bon in the 70s and would later go on to manage it in the 80s. Je suis un amoureux de l'amour. Je suis un amoureux de la musique. Claude is saying that he is a lover of love and a lover of music. He spent a big chunk of his life at Laban and counts himself lucky to have met some of the best musicians and most beautiful women in the world during his time there. Okay, back to the restaurant at Laban Douche. It wasn't one of those glamorous places where people couldn't relax. The restaurant was the party. According to Claude, they would play music from all over the world in the restaurant. For a while, the resident DJ in the club was Guy Cueva, a Cuban DJ who would play bands like Buena Vista Social Club and Los Van Van the kind of music that felt like summertime and big, vibrant family dinners. 
For Claude, the music was extremely important. He noticed that it didn't matter what time of day it was. People could come in during the early evening and throughout the night, and they would come to dance, to move, but above all else, to listen to music. The music playing on the first floor had a family reunion vibe that created an atmosphere where people could catch up with old friends and share private joyful moments with each other. The music was extremely important. Claude understood that people went out for the sake of meeting their friends, that they simply wanted the pleasure of sharing, laughing, and having fun together. The first floor of Les Bandouches was a meeting place for people to drink, talk, and unwind while listening to music from all around the world. But it was three stories high. You would have a second staircase. And if you walked towards the beautiful staircase and down the stairs, they would take you to the club, where you would instantly be hit by the sounds and sights of people partying. Jacques and Fabrice wanted to make Le Bon the best club in Paris to hear live music. They had this idea to have a concert, so they had a guy that was Pierre Benin. He escaped to London when he was 17 and decided he was going to be a rock photographer. And he became close to Malcolm McLaren and all this crowd. And then he followed uh, the Sex Pistols in like uh, 78 when the punk movement exploded. And so he hung out with all the music scene, uh, the London music scene, the British music scene. When he came back to Paris, they immediately hired him. They knew he had some of the best connections in Paris. So they told him... All right, you're in charge of booking talents. Pierre began to fill the dance floor with some of the most iconic musicians of the era, booking exciting new and up-and-coming bands to perform on stage. And he did an incredible job. And he booked bands that were completely unknown, like we were saying earlier, and they became massively famous. Uh, so they would play in front of 300 people in like 1978 or 79, and then you fast forward five years and they would fill up outdoor stadium. Levan quickly transformed the building that housed the old spa it's one of the hottest clubs in Paris. In the early 80s, there was a massive counterculture movement that started in London and spread throughout Europe with music and culture shaped by punks, goths, and new romantics. While Le Bon stubbornly remained a very Parisian club that was about exclusivity, glamour, and a certain kind of unattainability, some nights it welcomed in bands that reflected the cultural shift to perform live gigs. A few examples is uh, Depeche Mode, Simple Mind, UB40, R.E.M., and the legendary concert by Joy Division. Let's talk about that concert for a second, because it was one of the nights that gave Le Bon its celebrated status. It was the winter of 1979, December 18th to be specific. Joy Division, the post-punk English band that we talked about in our episode about the Hacienda, was in Paris to play some small concerts, including a gig at Le Bandouche. And a journalist at a French national radio station had heard about the gig. There was a cool uh, journalist at this national radio, and he thought that Toy Division was uh, worth airing, and he convinced his boss to uh, do a live recording of the concert. And this is how all the technicians came in and went live on the national radio. That Joy Division concert in 1979 
was broadcasted live onto a French national radio station. Nine of the songs recorded at that concert were captured and released as a Joy Division album two decades later. The album was named after the night, Les Bandouches, 18 December, 1979. A big part of the legend of Les Bandouches is this one. But that's just one of many. The history of Les Bandouches is filled with stories about memorable nights just like that one of unexpectedly magical moments and performances that took the whole room by surprise. 1979 was just the start, because the most legendary era of Le Bon's history, the 80s, was just around the corner. Happy Pride from Tomboy X, celebrating pride and the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women. Creating sustainable size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection. Obsessively fit tested for all day comfort in sizes 3 extra small through 6X. Visit TomboyX.com. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no Spice Girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. Leban was filled with stars, but it took a kind of invisibility to really capture them in the most unfiltered states. The best photographers teach themselves how to fade into the background. The people around them don't feel pressure to be anyone but themselves. At Leban, the almost invisible man behind the camera was the renowned French photographer, Falk Kahn, who was one of the few people allowed to take photos at the club. I start around the 80s. I just bought an icon around 81. It takes a heightened level of perception to be able to take a photo that translates the mood of the room. A photo of Jack Nicholson smiling as he walked out of the club with a French flag painted on his face. The odd but delightful moment when Nicolas Cage wrapped his arm around Grace Jones as they turned to face the camera and pose in sunglasses. The first photo that Falk took at Laban is still one of his favorites. He was standing near the club's entrance, talking to the doorman, when he saw someone inside the club that didn't quite fit in with the supermodels and film stars. And we saw a babacool, an old babacool. A babacool is French slang for a hippie. As Falk looked at the man, the doorman asked him a question. Have you seen that guy? I said, yes, it's an old babacool. He's old and ugly. But the doorman told Falk to guess again, to really look at the man's face. And when Falk looked a little bit closer, he realized who the babacool was. He's Mick Jagger. Oh, my God. So Falk rushed inside to snap Mick Jagger's photo. He couldn't miss the opportunity to get a picture of one of the most famous rock stars of all time. 
So I got a Leica under my jacket. I put a flash and I shoot five pictures of Mijaga. But Mick Jagger noticed Fox's camera. He went to me and said, show me your camera. And the little Leica was wrapped around my, my fist. And I gave him camera. I said, nice camera. I can build cathedral or museum. Uh, we'll, you will hang all the pictures you, you, shot, you shot from me. <laughs> that was the first photo Falk took in the club. But it was just the beginning. He went on to become one of the club's resident photographers for over 20 years. In 1984, the club was sold to Claude Schall, who we heard from earlier, and his business partner, Hubert Bukubza. Together, they ushered Luban into the heady excess of the 80s. The 80s marked a shift in Parisian culture. For the first time in almost 30 years, a socialist party was in power. And with them came a wave of liberalism that swept across media, art, and education. It was a bold, luxurious, brightly colored decade. And it was the age of the supermodel. All the top models, and top models like Christy McMenemy, Kate Moss, The women who spent their days modeling for high fashion campaigns and the pages of Vogue spent their nights partying at Le Bon. It became the de facto venue for Fashion Week after parties. And the models would arrive wearing fresh, off-the-runway looks from the designers for whom they were muses. Their dresses shimmering in the light as they filled the dance floor. That's Claude again. He considers Naomi Campbell his friend. And according to Claude, she would go up to the DJ booth asking them to play different tracks. And those weren't the only famous faces that spent their night at La Bandouche. While others mingled on the dance floor, one music legend would sit alone. Prince was at the height of his career, and he loved Le Bain. After Prince played shows in Paris, he would head over to Le Bain. He was having dinner there. Every night. I mean, I would see him all the time, dinner, dancing, uh, chasing girls, (laughs) and having a blast. One day in 1992, before a huge concert, he called up the managers of Le Bon. Told the management, listen, I'm playing uh, Bercy, which is the largest indoor stadium in Paris. I'm going to play like uh, for four nights. I want to have dinner after the concert. Can you uh, save me a table? But there was something else. So he said, uh, if you set up the stage with uh, drums, mics, amplifiers, this and that, maybe one of those nights after dinner, I will I will play for fun. So he didn't guarantee it. But of course, the management set the stage on uh, in order for him to decide whether or not he would play. But then on one rainy night in July 1992, a limo arrived outside. There were crowds outside the club and lines of people waiting to get in. When Prince stepped out of his limo, he was wearing a black and white suit and strode into the building with purpose. And he ended up one night getting on stage. So the very same night where he played in front of like 30,000 people, went to Levin, had dinner. And so two hours after finishing in front of 30,000 people, he played in front of 300 people. <laughs> for fun, for free, forever, you know, it lasted like two hours. He played some of his favorite songs, including Purple Rain. 
which on a rainy day in Paris felt especially magical. And that wasn't the only time Prince did a spontaneous concert at the club. Il aimerait faire une, une jam session au bain. En plus, c'était extraordinaire parce qu'il jouait tous les instruments. Claude witnessed Prince play at Le Bain for free. Watching him was an extraordinary experience because he played every instrument. He played sax. He played drums. And according to Claude, Prince never slept. He just played music and piano all night. But when Prince stepped into Le Bain, he had one very strict rule. No pictures. When he came to the nightclub, first he sent his bodyguards taking all the room, all the nightclub. When they saw a camera, he came to the camera and broke it down. Sometimes when Prince's bodyguards found someone with a camera in the club, they would take the camera and break it. Because Prince wanted to dance, sing, and perform for people who wanted to be in the moment with him. To this day, there are no photos or physical reminders of his spontaneous performances in the club. Only stories. And the club's history is filled with wild and magical stories just like that. At Levan, you could see a group of models fresh from a runway show spinning around in the middle of the dance floor. Or an artist and an athlete deep in the middle of a passionate conversation over a bottle of wine. It was kind of like the French Studio 54. In fact, Le Bandouche opened the same year that Studio 54 opened in New York. Here's a story Jean-Pierre heard from one of his friends who was a regular at both clubs. The other day I was with Jacques Grange. Jacques Grange is a very famous interior designer, decorator, Yves Saint Laurent's interior designers. Jacques was at the center of the Parisian art and design scene in the 80s. He reminded me that at the time you could fly Concorde, direct flight from Paris to New York and back. And it would only take like three hours and 20 minutes, which is ridiculous. When he was in Paris... He would go to Le Bain for dinner and see everyone, you know, from Lagerfeld to Saint Laurent, Catherine Deneuve, a lot of people from New York and London, you name it. And then after dinner, he would head to the airport and get onto the Concorde flight. He would fly the Concorde and he would say that on the plane, he could see like uh, 30% of the people on the plane <laughs> he saw the night before at Lima. But wait, it's not finished. Then he would land in New York <laughs> and then go to Studio 54 and see again people that uh, were at Le Bandouche two nights before. The clubs were in different countries that spoke different languages, but the scene was almost identical. So that's to tell you how it was like a micro-society, unbelievable, of like all those uh, super talented people that would party not only at Studio 54 or in Paris, but they were traveling all the time and you could see the same crowd in both places. So I found that story really mesmerizing. But what made Le Bon unique was the warm, intimate nature of the club. Only a select few photographers were allowed to take photos. And so there was this sense that if you walked into Le Bon, you were walking into a private party with people you knew you could really be yourself around. It was like a family reunion with some of the world's biggest stars, but in a place exclusive enough for them to actually let loose. 
So you would find the super famous people, the Monaco family, uh, all those people. You would see all those uh, artists. You know, uh, we have pictures of not only all the big rock stars and movie stars, like uh, from Iggy Pop to Robert De Niro to I mean everyone. But also we have uh, pictures of uh, of like Andy Warhol having dinner, uh, kissing, uh, chatting with friends. It's mind blowing. Remember how in its first life, Laban was a spa. Well, when Philippe Stark, the architect of the club, redesigned the interior of the building, he preserved one of its most central features, the swimming pool in the basement. People would jump into the pool in the middle of the night wearing their party dresses and expensively tailored suits. They would frolic in the water and dance to the sounds of the club on the floor above them. And back then, people could dance fully clothed or not in the swimming pool. Be spontaneous and hedonistic with the freedom of knowing that their faces wouldn't be all over the internet the next morning. There were no cell phones and no social media. Back then, people couldn't just reach into their pockets to document the night. They had to just sit and experience it. And that's part of what made nights at Laban feel so magical. Each night in Laban was filled with moments that would never happen again, at least not in the same way. La nuit, nous c'était un plaisir avant de 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 dire quoi que ce soit. But Claude, back then, the nighttime made everyone happy. At the end of the night, they would ask themselves, "Did we have a good laugh tonight? Did we meet beautiful people?" And the answer was always yes. From the 1880s to the 1960s, Laban was known as Laban Gabois. Paris's first spa became home to the city's greatest artists and thinkers. Then, from the 1870s until the early 2000s, Laban was known as Le Bon Douche, one of the most glamorous, star-studded nightclubs not just in Paris but in the world. Throughout its history, we always had the ability to attract the biggest talents of its time, and it's very unique. Like one place would attract all those talents for almost 140 years because it's still going on today. Yes, Leban is still open, but in a new way. After all, if there's one thing this club does well, it's changed form to adapt to the new era, all while maintaining its unique charm. In 2010, the nightclub was forced to close down. While under the control of the previous manager, the walls were seriously damaged. In 2010, the owner was kicked out of the building. I mean, I'm sorry, but it's I have to. It's the reality. Those are the facts. By the police uh, and by the authorities, because he decided to do some uh, remodeling job without hiring uh, the proper engineers, architects, contractors, without insurance at all. Jean Pierre had inherited the building from his father, so when the authorities arrived, Jean Pierre had to resolve things. At the end, uh, the authorities closed the place down, like it had a court injunction to save the building. The building had been declared dangerous and partially unsuitable to hold the club. And by 2010, Paris had changed. The nightlife scene had evolved, and a club like Laban didn't quite fit into the culture of the 21st century. People were telling me, it's over, let it go. Everybody told me, you're never going to put it back on the map. It's never going to happen. It's never going to work out. But Jean was determined. Laban was so deeply intertwined with his family's history and his own cultural upbringing. 
He wanted to find a way to save the building and preserve its artistic and musical history. But he was running into challenges. And so at some point I said, all right, I cannot find a new tenant. Nobody wants to take it over. After being a spa and a nightclub, it was time for Laban to step into its third life. And we turned the hotel into a five-star hotel. Okay, so let's be real for a minute. We sigh when we hear about cultural landmarks being turned into office buildings and mourn whenever an iconic club gets turned into a luxury apartment. It's heartbreaking to think of losing that musical and artistic legacy to something corporate or tasteless. But that's not what happened with Laban. This is one club with a happy ending. I'm a film producer originally. It's storytelling, so it's the same like making a movie. Jean-Pierre wanted to continue the story of Laban to usher it into a new era. So it's about telling the story the best way possible with the most talented people. The idea was to get the best guy to book the bands, the best chef to make the appropriate food, the best interior designer to make the coolest bar and restaurant and rooms. So he preserved the legacy of the club while updating it to cater to the fashion, music, and art scene of the 21st century. They preserved some of the furniture, the remnants of Philippe Stark's architecture, and the swimming pool. The other thing uh, which I did is I decided that we should go back to have live concerts in the place because of all the legendary concerts that occurred in the past. They created a space with the capacity for around 200 people to host weekly intimate concerts and live performances. And Jean-Pierre was pleasantly surprised to find that the people who had loved Le Bon in the 80s came back and found the same kind of love. The fun thing is like with Grace Jones coming back 30 years later, but not only is she partying in the nightclub, we had, she had a big party in her honor actually, but also she was sleeping there, which is fun. And you would bump into her at the swimming pool at 2 p.m. So this is the new Le Bon. And like the spa and nightclub before it, the new Leban has opened its doors up to welcome in a new generation of stars. As we speak, Diplo from Major Laser is staying at the hotel. We did an incredible concert, cool uh, new bands like uh, London Grammar, Dua Lipa. We should so intimate concert for those kind of artists. Massive Attack, uh, we had um, Metronomy. I mean, I'm super happy that I managed to get the place back on the map as a concert hall. And remember how Le Bon Gabois, the spa, was the place where 19th century artists congregated? That tradition has continued in the building's current life as a hotel. Artists and designers continue to flock to Le Bon. Not only that, but now they can sleep there, which is, uh, <laughs> makes the legion even more insane. So many iconic clubs close, they get demolished. But Le Bon maintained its place in Parisian culture. I don't know why the longevity, I think, compared to other clubs. I think because there's been many talents and owners that were in love with the place and were in love with the concept and said we have to go out of our way and think out of the box to making it happen. Leban came into the world over a century ago. And since the building opened up, it's lived so many different lives and welcomed so many different people. I think it's mysterious. It's like a chemistry, like some sorcerer uh, did. How many buildings is there in central Paris? Tens of thousands. Why? One address, 
7 rue du Bourg-l'Abbé, in, in very center of Paris, has attracted for nearly 140 years the biggest talent. Why has it been a place, great energy, lots of fun? The answer is, is, a, is a mystery. But why? Is there something in the water? In the next episode, we're heading to New York City and into one of the most iconic clubs, the Paradise Garage, and get to know the legend that is Larry LeVan. The History of the World's Greatest Nightclubs is produced by Neon Hum Media for London Audio and iHeartRadio. For London Audio, our executive producers are Paris Hilton, Bruce Robertson, and Bruce Gersh. The executive producer for Neon Hum is Jonathan Hirsch. Our producer is Rufaro Faith Mazarua. Navani Otero and Liz Sanchez are our associate producers. Our series producer is Crystal Genesis. Our editor is Stephanie Serrano. Samantha Allison is our production manager. And Alexis Martinez is our production coordinator. This episode was written by Rufaro Faith Mazarura and fact-checked by Catherine Newhead. Theme and original music by Asha Ivanovich. Our sound design engineers are Sam Baer and Josh Hahn. I'm your host, Alternate, and we'll see you next time on the history of the world's greatest nightclubs. Happy Pride from Tomboy X, celebrating pride in the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women. Creating sustainable size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection. Obsessively fit tested for all day comfort in sizes 3 extra small through 6X. Visit TomboyX.com. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene was good! But be careful, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Gene, run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Kurt Woodsmith. You remember me from such TV comedies as That 70s Show and That 90s Show on Netflix. I'll never forget the words that my grandfather said just before he kicked the bucket. He said, watch how far I can kick this bucket. People ask me where I get my dad jokes from. I tell them to listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Listen to Daily Dad Jokes every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.